It's, uh, it looks like it's time here, so um, I turned around and my first slide was up, and it's like, how'd that happen? I didn't hit the button. Aha, uh -huh. the computer did it for me. This AI stuff, isn't it great? <laughs> okay, we, um, we're on the second part of Lesson 13 uh, tonight. Welcome everybody who's here. Um, I'm looking around, do I see visitors? Well, I won't, I won't give you the disclaimer, but... Uh, if, uh, if you like the class tonight, come back and hear Sean on, on Sunday. If you don't like the class tonight, come back and hear Sean on Sunday for, for looking at this. But hopefully, um, we'll make the class uh, informative to the issues that we're talking about here. And so, uh, let's jump right in because we've got a lot to pack in our 30 or 35 minutes or so here. You all know the rules, and uh, I don't think we have any class exercises tonight. So, uh, please try to limit your comments. and. Uh, and not take over the class, and I'll try to do my best to keep up with that. Um, we're talking about Lesson 13, Independent and Autonomous Churches. And we spent some time on Sunday just defining those words, what does that mean, and um, hopefully you participated in that and you thought about that or you went and got your dictionary and looked some of those up. I'm not going to go through over that. But I will just start the lesson tonight with the, with the summary that we're, look, we're looking at three key areas where this idea of independence and autonomy are established. There are other areas that we can apply this principle to. And I think these are three key areas that were picked, I, I believe, by Sean when he was putting this together, because these are often areas where churches go astray in these particular areas. And if they go astray in these, they could go astray in others. And so for us, if we can get grounded in understanding the oversight of the elders and how that's autonomous and how that works as we find in the scriptures when we read the scriptures understand the use of the treasury and the funds that are here and understand what it meant to receive benevolence if you understand those things from what we've studied here tonight and on your study on your own you'll be through about 90 percent of the reasons that there have been divisions within the church of christ and divisions um, really over time uh, in religious bodies um, that began with the early divisions that ultimately started the Catholic Church. And so uh, all of these things are things that we can bring back to something practical to understand, well, how would, how would I understand if I was moved to a new city and I was joining up with a new church and I was asking about their practices, how would I know if their practices were scriptural or not, if what they were doing with their treasury or how they were being overseen was scriptural or not? These will help you, I think, in, in, in your own study and looking at that. So to summarize the point we got to in our lesson, we really talked about this area of oversight of the elders. And tell me the, tell me the words you would say about what is the authority of the elders as, as respect to the autonomy or other churches. Where are there to be elders? Local churches, Carol? And their own church, in, in, in every church. And so are elders in one church responsible to elders of another church? We didn't see that last week. We're going to study some more things, and we're going to see some places where there's some interaction of elders between different churches, and we'll learn some things from that, but we didn't see that last week. In fact, who did we see last week that elders in the church are responsible to? Jesus, the chief shepherd. And so if, if you're into organizational structures, and I used to be, not so much anymore, I report to Judy most of the time at home, so that's the org structure. I mean, I'm the head of the house, but she's the next, so we know how that works. Um, 
But the organizational structure that really is outlined in the scriptures is the chief shepherd, elders of each church, all the churches in the world that are existing, those elders are reporting up to that chief shepherd. And then those of us who are members of the church are really under the leadership of those elders. And that's what 1 Peter 5 said. We saw Paul telling several, several different times, go and appoint elders in every church or every city. That's the plan. And so if a church has a different structure than that, and if it, it's, it has a denominational structure or a structure where one set of, set of elders seem to let another set of elders in another church make decisions for them, there might be something to investigate here that's not scriptural in looking at. And that's really the point of learning to understand this autonomy. So any questions over last week before we move ahead and jump into the uh, two new topics we're going to look at tonight? Okay. Before we go any further, let's have a word of prayer as we uh, jump into this lesson. Father, we thank you so much for your scripture and for your word. We thank you, Father, that we can learn from your word how you would have us to operate, that we're not groping around in the dark. We ask, Father, that you would continue to guide us, help us, Father, through our study and through prayer and through meditation upon your word to come to, to the full knowledge of the truth and to be committed, Father, to implement it in this church and in our lives as we understand it. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Let's talk about the treasury. Who's got a good, strong voice who can read for me? Somebody raise your hand if you're ready to, if you're ready to read for me. Okay, Lance, turn to Acts, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 32 and read through verse 36. I, wanna, I want us to get a little bit of background for what we're going to be talking about here um, and learning from an example that we're given in the, in the scriptures. Lance, please. This is the very beginning of a story that carries on throughout the entire New Testament. And it's the story of the first church in Jerusalem that was filled with all those people who had come for Pentecost, who heard that first sermon, and as the church expanded out, it had all these people from all, who had been Jews from other parts of the region who had come to Jerusalem and they stayed. And what was the big problem that we see happening here for the first time amongst all those people who had stayed in Jerusalem who had become converted? Well, they ran out of money, right? They were away from their jobs. They, were away from their, they ran out of money. And so what did the local church in Jerusalem do in order to meet those needs here at the very onset within several years of when the, of that church was established? What did the, this was a local church action in and of itself. What did they do? They gave money. And who gave money? The members. The members, I mean, Barnabas is one of them, sold property. In fact, who are some other people that sold property that we know of? Their names. 
And we had a little problem with that, didn't they? They lied about how much they sold. But that's what they were doing. And that was a church taking care of its own benevolent needs. Okay? That's scriptural, right? And we, and we know and see that from, from starting here. Well, this problem doesn't get fixed by that. In fact, you have so many people that have a need. What eventually can happen to a local church when it's having people having to sell property to take care of people and doing all that? What can happen at the is, as that goes on? They run out of money, run out of assets. That happened to Jerusalem, and they needed help. And so when we think about what happened with the treasury and what happened when this congregation of Jerusalem Christians needed aid because Christians were destitute here, we find this problem being talked about over and over throughout Paul's epistles especially. And so the, the scripture you were given in your lesson was about this problem later on. After that, had, that the Jerusalem church had run out of money. And so that's the background to why do we have this verse here. So the first question I'm going to ask you, how did the local churches in Macedonia and Achaia aid needy saints in Jerusalem? How did they aid the needy saints? One of you guys on the front, have you looked that, that passage up? What did they do? In Achaia. Was Achaia in Jerusalem, by the way? Where was Achaia? Achaia is where Corinth was, right? That's way over in Europe. Jerusalem's over here in Israel. So there was a long ways away. So what did the, what did the Christians in Achaia do? Somebody want to help out? They gave according to their means. Now, isn't that exactly what the, first, what the church in Jerusalem did to start with? They gave according to their means, and what did that mean sometime? He says they even sold property to do it. But they all, we learn from that, from, that from that Ananias and Sapphira story that that was still a free will offering, and they had control of their assets until they gave them to the elders. And so that happened in Corinth and in Macedonia and all those places there. People gave money because they knew the church in Jerusalem Christians there needed help. And so they pulled together and gave property for doing that. And all the examples, by the way, we have of giving in 1 Corinthians, that verse we quote so often in 1 Corinthians 16, is about gathering up this offering to take back to, to Jerusalem. Now, he said in 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, and you had a lot of verses to read there, so let me pull these two verses out. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred them up, uh, has stirred up most of them. How long did it take to pull this money together to get to Jerusalem? At least over a year, because. Paul had been, to Corinth, had been to Achaia, then he had gone to other places and said, the Christians in Achaia are ready to do this. That had got those Macedonian churches. They were ready to do this, so they had been raising money. And then, of course, Paul says back to Corinth, make sure your money's ready when I come, right? And so this is a money-raising effort to help destitute Christians. That's pure and simple what this is. That's what all this background is, is about. Now... This money is now raised. How was the treasury in Corinth, this money that was raised, how was it controlled 
as shown in 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter, verse 3. How was that treasury controlled? What do you learn from that? So here's your verse. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. How was that money controlled? Peggy? Some, whoever those people were, people you accredit, are going to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? That the church there selected people it knew to actually take their gift to Jerusalem. Why would you have to do Well, I was about to say, why would you have to do that? They could just write a check, right? <laughs> Not back then. It was physical money, so they had to keep it secure and safe. But what? Whose control was that money under all the way until it got to Jerusalem? It was in Corinth's control. Their messengers were there. In fact, if something would have, we don't know this for sure, but what if the messengers got to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church said, we're fine. We had enough contributions from other people. We don't need it. They would have turned around and taken it back. It was under their control the entire time until they did the next thing with it. So, we now know from, from, from the rest of our study here that they, they ended up doing the next, the next thing, and we'll talk about in a minute how that happened. We talk about receiving benevolence. But was it necessary for Jerusalem to, or excuse me, why was it necessary for Jerusalem to receive this gift from other churches? And we've already talked about the need that was there, but in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 13 and 14, what does Paul say was happening when this gift was given from Corinth to Jerusalem? Did you get that? Your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So they had a need, and, they, and the Corinthian and the Macedonian Christians had abundance, and so they supplied their need. So that what? So what happened if one day the Corinthians fell into need? What would, what would happen? Reciprocity. And there's a word that's in there, and what's that word? At the very last word in that. Fairness. So let, let's back up from this and ask ourselves, so, so what, what can we surmise from that? Or to use a term we've maybe used before, what can we infer from the fact that when one set of churches is in need and another set of churches fills their need, that's great. And then one day, if that need turns around the other direction, then that set of churches could turn around and give back to them. What, what kind of a system of giving is ruled out by what is talked about right here? A central distribution fund. A fund that is set up in case something happens in the future amongst all these churches, we have money set aside so we can jump in and go do that. Do you know how many, how many religious organizations have exactly that kind of a fund? And sometimes when that religious organization is a church of Christ, it's a label that some people put on that as a sponsoring church. A church might have a mission where it has a fund of money that's not yet distributed 
not yet earmarked for a need, and it's going to go in one direction or the other based upon what a set of elders says about that fund, except those funds haven't been raised even from the members of their church. They've been raised from multiple churches, putting money together in case there's a need at some point, right? So you go to these verses a lot to make that exact point, and that's a really important point to make. There are some details about this, though, that are important mm -hmm. to, to remember yep. in that these two churches, or however many churches were involved in this, did actually coordinate with each other Number one, in that they were all giving to this one individual church, and they might have all decided to do that. But when you go to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 17 to 19, you find out that they all together chose one person, actually two people. All these churches agreed with each other to, to send two messengers with Paul and the money. And so they all had to agree, which person are we going to send? And they all agreed on one person to, to send. They didn't send their own individual people. Every church sent, their, sent one person. So you had however many people going. I'll have to look at that again to determine that. I, I, hear what you, I hear what you're saying on that. Yeah, he says, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. Yeah. So that it implies that there are multiple churches agreeing on one individual person that they all trust. And, and so it's not to say that churches never work together. And that's, that, that's a well-taken point. In fact, we're, if you'll hold that just a minute, we're going to talk about that when we get to the next section on benevolence because there are some so lots of this that we have to be careful not to put in place, and that one of them is that churches never talk to each other and do things totally independently without information flow, and that, then that's, that, that is an excellent point. What... Go ahead, go ahead, Chad. Yeah, one quick point is that you'll notice the word treasury is never mentioned here. Mm -hmm. That's one of our words. We don't actually talk about the treasury at all. That is implied. And even our other authorities that the grouping of the money together and laying it at the apostles' feet, it, it is implied that that is a grouping of money. But the entire topic that we use to describe this No. The treasury or rules about the treasury in that form. So if, if, you, if you remember when we talked about implication earlier with Sean, we talked about, okay, so what about paying for the utility bills and having a building and all those things? And the only examples we have in the Bible of money being pulled together are money being pulled together by a local church to then be used in a way that it directs for it need. But all the what needs that are there other than benevolence and talking a minute about preaching um, are things that we infer, that we have that come because we have to do other things. So that's, that's an excellent point in looking at that. But when we, when we back all the way away from that, what does it say the Bible principle is? Every church determines its capability to contribute to a need. And interestingly enough, that's based upon every member determining their ability to contribute when we see that happening. Once contribution has been made for a need, every church determines how to use that need. There's not a controlling organization that says, okay, we want the churches in Arizona to take on this work here. 
It's very unique for us. We don't realize, not being part of another religious body, how unique that is. The body with the big temple that's, in, 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 that's down south of us here has got a whole different approach to how that, that money is raised and who actually controls that money in looking at that. Finally, every church controls its own treasury and controls the way the money comes out, comes out of that. Or it controls its own funds that have been raised in order to do the work that that church needs to do. So those are some things about churches pooling money together that we can observe how they did this one thing. And, and just by the way, was, this is a multi-year need that existed in the Jerusalem church. If there was ever a reason to create a general organization to control money in case there's another need like this has arise, don't you think this would have been an opportunity to do it? Yet we don't see anything like that in the scriptures. And so the, this idea that, well, the things that are happening today are so different than what happened in the first century, we have to come up with different methods. I don't know in my lifetime I've ever seen a need so big in a church for multi-year benevolence needed to be taken with the church in order to keep it out of poverty. I haven't seen a need that big in our age. So... I think the, one of the biggest things that's happened in the church as far as benevolent needs from where other churches had to pull in happened in the New Testament scriptures. And there was no reason to set up another organization other than the elders of that church and elders of other churches sending money, as we'll see, to that church. So let's, let's flip the page here and ask, what happens if you're on the other end of this money being sent, in this case for benevolence? What happens at that point when the benevolent need has been, has been identified and has been given. Um, one other reader here. Acts the 11th chapter, verse 27 and 28. Who's got your Bibles out? Who, give me a good loud read of that. Acts 11, 27 and 28. Thank you. Go, Kevin. Okay, so, go Mitch. No, I, I just want to um, back up just one step, if you don't mind, and with what Brian said, and I agree. A real, a real world example would be um, the needs of Sierra Leone during one of their disasters there, mm -hmm. SARS. There are churches in Indiana, mm -hmm. Florida, Ohio, and Arizona that sent to their mm -hmm. needs. And we were in
Excellent point. And in fact, this this verse here, what do we how does this verse start off? Somebody from Jerusalem prophesied about the famine and recognized the need that was going to happen. And where were they at? In Antioch. And which church raised funds? Antioch, right? And who did they select to send the funds? Paul and Barnabas. Now here's the key, quite the key piece on that. So here's information flowing. It, this is actually the first time help comes from Jerusalem from outside, right? Where did Paul and Barnabas take the money? To the elders. So again, they didn't take it to an, another body. They didn't go, by the way, and do what with that money? They distribute them. Paul and Barnabas didn't distribute it to needy Christians, did they? They took it to the elders of that, of that church that was there. And so when, when we ask ourselves about does the church who gives maintain control over their funds once they've actually given them to the needy church? No. That's what giving is, right? From the definition of the word giving, we know that. So if we can make up all kinds of examples, we don't have time to do that, but if the church, but, but if the church in Antioch had, had said, well, I want to give this, but I only want to give this to Christians who were from the Antioch region. Would that, would that have been scriptural, according to this model here? No, it, it, it wasn't. What, what ultimately had to happen in order to distribute that money? The people who knew the actual situation on the ground who needed the money had to do that. And we know that that's the case because in Acts the seventh chapter, sixth chapter, excuse me, what was happening in Jerusalem as this part of this famine was getting started? And, and, and how did the elders solve that problem? We think it's the first deacons that were appointed through the inspiration to, to do that, to actually take care of the Grecian widows. So the elders, the local elders would know what it's going to take to take care of all the needs because what did they have that the church in Antioch did not have? Local knowledge, right? Now, again, that's a place where it makes total sense that it should be like that. It doesn't have to make total sense, but that's the model that God gave was that the people on the ground who understood the needs were the people who actually distributed the money. The churches who, who had the money from the outside, they surrendered their money to those local elders and were able to do that. So that is, in fact, cooperation. But where is control of this? Does it, is, do two people ever control that money at the same time? I mean, it's a technicality, but that's the point here, is that so many religious organizations have been put together where multiple people have their hands in what's going on, when in fact, that's not the Bible model from, from, from what's happening here. So the next question that, that Sean asked in, the, in the, this is really the, the, this part of this one, who was responsible for, for distributing the needy funds? And we just, we've just answered that. It's the elders were the ones responsible for actually making sure that that, that, that happened. And so when you look at these needs where an individual Christian decides they're going to help out, then the church they're a member of has said, we're going to help if we raise the funds to do this, and here's what we're going to raise, like Corinth did or the Macedonian churches or Antioch did. They actually then sent that money to the control of the local elders. That money gets distributed. That's the, the scriptural model, pure and simple.
for, for doing that and making sure that happens. Now, how did all these churches in Achaia in Macedonia know about the need in Jerusalem? Paul. Which church was Paul a member of? Way back, he was a member of Antioch, and then a little bit of a while at Jerusalem, and then a little while at Ephesus. And then a little, it, it, what was happening as Paul and Barnabas and Paul and other people were going and telling other churches about what was happening in Jerusalem? What, what was, what was, what's that called there? It's information flow about the situation. And when Paul talked to the Corinthians and said, the Macedonians heard you were going to give, they gave more than I ever expected them to. Have you got your money ready? What, what was that? So was that cooperation? Was that communication? It's just as Mitch pointed out here before, information was flowing to make sure the need could be taken care of. But control was never flowing. No one ever told Corinth, you've got to give a thousand drachmas. That's your number. You've got to come up with that no matter what. That didn't happen. It was, you've got to pull, this is a need, you determine if you're going to give to it, you have money, you send your messengers, you give the money to the church in, in Jerusalem. So kind of pure and simple, that's the Bible model. And not a model of setting up a bunch of money somewhere else with another organization who's going to keep their finger on the pulse and find out what's happening. No, it's a person who's trustworthy, carrying trustworthy information to people, them determining if they're going to act on that information, and then them acting if they choose to, and moving ahead to meet that need. Mike, you had your hand up. Yeah, we, and we know some of the churches in Macedonia, but we don't know. And, and this need in Jerusalem isn't mentioned to all the letters for the churches in Macedonia that we do have. And so information was flowing. So, so that point that was made here is, is it wrong for other churches, one church to communicate with another church about a need that somebody else they know has? Absolutely not. But what would be wrong? If Monta Vista said, we control Sierra Leone's need fund, so Indiana Church, you send money to us, Valley, you send money to us, you send money to us, we'll take care of Sierra Leone, and we're responsible for that. That's not a Bible model. Though a lot of churches practice exactly that's, that, that, that model for doing that. Kevin? Absolutely, absolutely, because the churches would no longer be able to know and assure that their money was being used for the purpose that they meant for it to be used. And that, that's, to me, the logic behind that. When we analyze God's logic, it's always it's better than our logic would ever be in that, but that's, that's so that people can be assured that we knew we sent the money to Jerusalem, we, we trusted our messenger, we trusted those who received it to actually give it out and make sure that need was filled.
That's exactly right. And do we know of places where religions we hear about, preachers we hear about, have kind of amassed some funds for themselves and they're skimming some off the top? We, we see some prominent tele televangelists who do that very thing, right? And in, in, in looking at that. God's system, does that mean somebody can't do something wrong in that system? Somebody can steal or do something like that. It's not set up to allow to do that. I want us to real quickly hit a couple of points here before the class is over with. So I'm going to give you the scriptures uh, to look at here, so I'm going to rely on your Bible knowledge. Is there a difference for how preachers' needs are handled in the New Testament versus this benevolent need? What is that difference, Don? Okay, so there's certainly we certainly see people compensated um, by the church that they're that they're working at. So how did how was Paul how was Paul supported when he was preaching, say, in Corinth? Philippi. A Philippi. Did Philippi send the money to the Corinthian elders? Who they send it to? Paul. Paul. So there's a different model for how evangelists were, were supported in the New Testament. Churches sending their money for evangelism, supporting someone while they're working in evangelism, was done by having an individual relationship with that person. Paul said, in fact, Corinth wanted to pay me, but I wouldn't let them. But you sent to my need. And we also know from Acts that he also worked making tents to support himself at that time. He had a reason not, not wanting them to pay him. Um, and we can go into that, not enough time for doing that, if we, some things we might surmise from that. But suffice it to say, that's a different model than benevolence. It, so can we take the model for benevolence and apply it to preaching? Can we take the model for preaching and apply it to benevolence? We really can't. And that's just a little bit of a setup for our next two lessons are going to be the difference in what the church can do and the individual can do. Because there are times at which needs get taken care of not by a church. By individuals. And is there authority to do that? Does all benevolence have to be taken care of by the church? Well, the scriptures didn't say that. But when the church steps in for benevolence, what happens? This is, this is what happens. And so just a little bit as you study for that uh, the next week. The last thing I want to just quickly talk about here, just because this came up and, uh, in, in, uh, in a discussion afterwards on Sunday, and we're not going to go into all this, but it's the question, and you might get this from a religious friend, doesn't Acts 15 prove that there should be the occasional council of multiple churches getting together and figuring out what we're going to do next? I mean, is, when you read your Bibles, what, what, Acts 15, what will be written over in, in the heading over Acts 15? And, and the Jerusalem Council. So without going through the whole history of the Jerusalem Council, was the Jerusalem Council a meeting of delegates from multiple churches and a general meeting to kind of decide what we're going to do on this year's agenda in, in A.D. 36? It wasn't. It was, it was actually the Jerusalem church dealing with a, a problem that was happening under its leadership. There were men going out from the Jerusalem church. And by the way, who, were, who was amongst the elders for the Jerusalem church? Apostles and other men as well. It's a big church. Had a lot to oversee there. 
But men were going out from there saying to the Gentiles, and not only you have to be baptized, you've got to be circumcised. And we're saying it as if that's what, that's what they're saying in Jerusalem. And so when this got reported back to the Jerusalem church, everybody involved at, at, and, and got together, that's the Jerusalem council, and what did they do? They just clarified. This is not what God is teaching. We're not sending this out. These people are, who are troubling you are not from us, so they're clearing the air on that. And I would actually argue that even though we see some things said for the first time there about what Gentiles should do, abstain from of, of idol, meat sacrifice to idols and from blood and other things, that those were principles they were just reiterating. This was not a church that, this was not a, an occasion for the church to come together and have a general council to decide what it's going to do for its agenda the next year, like we see most of the religious world around us doing. This was simply the dealing with the problem for those who actually knew they had a problem. So in many ways, it was like this whole benevolence issue. There was a problem that information needed to flow amongst other churches so that they had enough information to deal with that problem if these teachers showed up, just like the information about the need in Jerusalem needed to flow so that Christians could decide whether or not they wanted to give to that need and help out their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. And so... Be careful if you're, if you're having a discussion on that. That's probably not the place to have a discussion with somebody anyway. But you might hear that about, um, about church councils and those sort of things being okay and authorized in any form because there was one in Acts the 15th chapter. So I think that was the second bell. But any last comments or questions? Lance, give, give the floor to you. And I, and I think that's a good thing, and I'll, I'm going to put that together with something Brian said earlier. Sometimes in the church, we, who don't want to make the mistakes of appropriately coordinating work between churches that, in a way that we don't see it, we think the answer to that is to not communicate. And nowhere in the scripture does it say that information, and in fact, there's plenty of examples where communication does happen between churches to warn people about false teaching to let people know of needs that are arising that they see and, and looking at that. To get people the information they need to make a good decision about whether to participate or not or whether to reject a teacher or not. Those things are appropriate and we can't pull away from those things because it sounds like churches working together. Churches working together are putting their funds or their effort or their direction together in a way that the Bible doesn't show. If the Bible shows us able to do that, we're authorized to do that. That's the whole point of this authority work. So let's be careful in not too, being too quick to judge. Maybe some situations that, in fact, people aren't providing direction. They're just asking people to give information so that they actually can get, make a good decision to move ahead. So hope I haven't made too much of a, of a mess of this in your mind. Uh, if we have, we'll let Sean straighten us out on Sunday morning in, in, uh, in doing that. But I hope, uh, hope it's been valuable to you to think about how does a church do what it needs to do in the way that God has authorized us to do it? And if we do it that way, we can be assured God's going to make the increase. It's not because we come up with some clever new way to get his work done. If we get the work done his way, he'll make it work to his, uh, to his will and his satisfaction. So thank you very much for your participation tonight.